We are continuing our series on the kingdom of God. Uh, Normally, uh, our practice here at Redeemer is to preach through either sections or sometimes uh, whole books of the Bible for several weeks or several months. But on occasion, we do like to to look at a specific topic uh, or idea. And we're still, of course, we want to preach uh, from the scriptures, but what we'll do is we'll look around um, throughout the Bible and see what different passages have to say about a given topic. Um, So remember, or if you'll remember, we have uh, tried to define the kingdom of God not as not as God's territory, but his rule and reign through his son, uh, Jesus Christ. So several weeks ago, we began by looking at the king himself, uh, at Jesus uh, and his baptism, wherein he identifies himself with his people. And then the last several weeks, uh, we began looking at the nature of the kingdom. We're trying to answer the question, what is the kingdom like? What, what kind of kingdom is it? So we started out by saying that the kingdom is both already and it is not yet. In other words, at the incarnation of Christ, the kingdom has arrived. It is here, but its fullness, the day when There will be no sun or moon because the glory of God shines over all things. That day uh, is not yet here. That day awaits Christ's return, uh, his second coming. But in different ways, uh, the last several sermons have all all looked at this idea of the already uh, and the not yet. That the kingdom's present, but yet in some kind of way, uh, it remains hidden. I want you to keep those things in mind As we look at our passage this morning, Um, I'm going to read from John chapter 18. If you want to turn there in your Bible, I'll start in verse 28. It's also printed there for you in your bulletin. Uh, Please give your attention uh, to the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. This is John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king? 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming into your presence, and we thank you for the revelation uh, that we have just read, that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And we pray now that as we hear the preaching of the word, that by your spirit you would press it into our hearts, that you'd make it real to us, and that you would use it uh, to change us, to make us more like your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. To begin uh, this morning, I want to ask you just to think about a couple questions. I don't, I don't want you to, to answer out loud, uh, but just to think about these, to, to imagine how you, might, how you might really answer these questions. Okay, everybody ready? Okay. Uh, so what is it uh, that you desire? Uh, what is it that you want that takes up space uh, in, your, in your day-to-day thinking? And... When you consider that thing or those things, uh, whatever it is that just popped into your mind, whether, whether you think it was the right thing or not, when you consider that thing, um, do you have a plan? Is there a, is there a particular agenda for how you're going to go about obtaining that thing? What, what might you be willing to sacrifice in order to get that thing? And how far... Would you be willing to go to see uh, that agenda advanced? When we get to John 18, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, who are referred to just as the Jews more broadly uh, later in the passage, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they have finally had enough of Jesus. They have arrested him uh, with, with Judas's help, and they have personally brought him to Pilate in order to obtain a death sentence. In all four Gospels, we have a record of Pilate's question to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? But it's only, it's only in John that we're provided with these extra conversations. First a conversation between Pilate and the chief priests and the Pharisees, and then another conversation between Pilate and Jesus himself. And what we see is that everyone in the scene has an agenda. And not only that, uh, there are particular methods for advancing their agenda. There's a certain way of doing business that reveals their motivations and their intentions. And what John is doing, what John is doing in this passage by including these extra conversations is he's emphasizing for us uh, the character of the kingdom, in particular the character of the king, So as we look at this passage together, what I want us to see is that the kingdom of God is of a spiritual character. And in particular, uh, we'll look at at three elements or sort of three different angles of that character. We'll see that the kingdom of God is invisible. Uh, The kingdom of God comes in weakness. And lastly, we'll see that the kingdom of God is all about the truth. Okay, it's invisible 
It comes in weakness and it concerns the truth. So first, the kingdom of God is invisible. In other words, and I I realize that we are beginning to sort of repeat ourselves here, uh, the fifth week into the sermon series, but there is more to the kingdom than meets the eye. God's reign on earth through Christ is not a superficial coding. Uh, It is something that runs much deeper than that. And we see that in a couple ways here. Now, the kingdom is invisible first because it's not primarily about externals. It is not primarily about an outward religious observance. At this point, the Jews have brought Jesus to Pilate's headquarters in order to establish some charges against him. But we learn in verse 28... Uh, that they themselves uh, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Here the the Passover probably refers to the ongoing observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would have begun uh, at the end of the Passover meal and then lasted for another seven days. But you see what's happening here. The Jews, they are longing for a certain kingdom as well, And they believe that their participation in that kingdom is tied to a sort of surface-level rule-keeping. They've been plotting to kill Jesus for months, and they've just held a secret meeting the night before, explicitly against their own Old Testament law. They're trying to come up with a charge that will stick against a man that they know to be innocent. And they're in process of delivering the Messiah over to death. And they want to make sure that they're not defiled. All good little boys and girls eat the Passover. You see the irony here. It's really a a deep irony. Is that they are concerned about the Passover and their participation in it. While they deliver over the Lamb of God himself to become the true Passover. But it's so obvious to the readers that this has nothing to do with the inner workings of their heart. Their concern is entirely with their outward appearance. They go through the motions of religion rather than being concerned about the motivations of their religion. And it's the defiling of their hearts that is on full display. So that they're willing to lie. They're willing to break their own laws in secret, uh, to manipulate the judicial system, all to get rid of someone that they perceive to be a threat uh, to their power and to their agenda. But they wouldn't miss Sunday school. They, They probably knew how to tie a Windsor knot and never wore white after Labor Day. But the kingdom's not about external observances. And we also see it's invisible because it operates in the realm of God's unseen purposes. Now we have this interesting exchange uh, between the Jews and Pilate here where he asks them uh, what accusation they bring and they say, well, he's obviously done something wrong and Pilate puts the ball back in their court in verse 31 and says, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. At this point, uh, Pilate almost certainly knows uh, what the charges are. It's extremely unlikely that he wouldn't be familiar uh, with what they were trying to do and why Jesus was now in front of him. But he is a power-hungry man himself. And he wants the Jews 
Uh, he wants them to know who's in charge. Uh, he's, willing, he's willing to put up uh, with their sort of feigned concerns about purity and sort of step outside of his headquarters and go talk to them. But what he's unwilling to do is let them think that they're in control. So he forces them to say what the real issue is, is that they need his help. You see, in Rome, the Jews were basically allowed to, to live according to their own customs as long as, as, long as they didn't cause any trouble uh, for the Roman government. As long as they paid their taxes, they were mostly left alone, but they were not allowed to administer uh, the death penalty. This was something that was reserved uh, for the Roman government. The Jews want to see Jesus executed, uh, but they're going to need Pilate's help. They need Pilate uh, to bring the death sentence. So Pilate takes this as an opportunity to remind them uh, who's in control. So it's, it's pretty clear the Jews have their agenda. Uh, Pilate has his agenda. But notice that neither one of them is in control of the situation. Look with me at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This language of fulfillment here is familiar uh, in the Gospels. They often tell us that Something in particular has happened in Jesus' life specifically to fulfill uh, some Old Testament text, some previous passage of Scripture centuries prior. But here, you see, it's Jesus' own words about himself uh, that have to be fulfilled. Earlier in John, in chapter 12, Jesus had said that at his death, he would be lifted up from earth. In other words... Jesus would be crucified, uh, not stoned, which would have been more common uh, for a Jewish execution. Uh, The deliverance over to the Romans is what enabled uh, his own words to be fulfilled. It's what enabled him to be crucified. So do you you see what's going on here? Uh, The Jews who are working so hard to ensure Jesus' death, they are not in control. Pilate who has now forced the Jews to acknowledge uh, their need of him. He's not in control. But once again, we see that it's God himself. He's orchestrating the events of history in order to advance his kingdom on earth. The point here is clear. God's kingdom cannot be managed and it cannot be manipulated. My wife Nan's grandfather, uh, he passed away maybe 15 years ago now, Uh, but he was very fond of telling stories. Uh, I think some of them were true, and a lot of them uh, were just sort of story jokes. Uh, But uh, his wife, Nan's grandmother, she actually published a book of his stories called Ben's Stories uh, a few years ago. I mean, it's like 300 pages long, all these stories that she wrote out longhand on a yellow pad that her daughter then put into a book for him. But anyway, one of, my, one of my favorite stories in there, and that I've heard retold by her family members several times, is that there was this doctor who worked at uh, what used to just be called an asylum, or an insane asylum. And he was making his rounds, and he comes by this woman's room, and she's not wearing anything but a hat. She's not wearing any clothes. She just has a hat on. 
So he asked her, why aren't you wearing any clothes? And she's kind of grouchy, and she says, well, nobody ever comes to see me. So, you know, the obvious follow-up question is, so well, what about the hat? She said, well, somebody might come. This is what we call uh, a half measure. Um, it really misses the whole point of putting on clothes in the first place, right? Now, I seriously doubt, uh, I seriously doubt that anyone here, any of you really believe that you can force God's hand uh, and make him uh, do anything. But I wonder how often uh, our obedience is simply like a hat that we put on. You see the kind of absurdity in it? Does your obedience ever really get under the surface? Or do you simply uh, live a life in service to your own desires and occasionally tack on things like church attendance or trying to be nice, something like that? And the easier those things are, you know, the more dogmatic Uh, You can be about them, but the weightier matters of pride uh, and hatred, all the subtle idolatries that we can fall into, those things remain hidden. But you cannot prepare uh, for the second coming by putting on a hat. Uh, And I know know that you do this uh, because I do this all the time. Uh, But why? Why is it uh, that we treat our life with God this way when God exists uh, to serve our world and not the other way around? We begin to think that we can sort of manage him and that we can manipulate uh, the kingdom. But the kingdom is, is far too important. It is of far too great a consequence to be entered into uh, simply by jumping through a few hoops. In fact, Uh, No one enters the kingdom of their own accord. The kingdom is the hand of God in history. It is the spirit blowing where he will. And it is something that we must be caught up into. uh, Something that must be prayed for and pleaded for. Not a thing to be regulated. So while the kingdom is invisible, uh, we also see something... It would have been absolutely radical uh, to the Jews, and really, uh, really, I don't think it's any less radical today, although I think we often fail to see uh, how otherworldly it is. But that is that the kingdom of God comes in weakness. In this completely counterintuitive way, both the coming and the advancement of God's reign on earth are achieved through acts of humility and self-sacrifice and suffering. So Pilate, uh, he finishes speaking with the Jews outside. He he comes back into his headquarters and he has this conversation uh, with Jesus. And now it's pretty clear what the accusations are. You see, it it would have been meaningless to Pilate to hear that Jesus was a blasphemer or that he claimed to be the son of God. But kingship, well, to claim kingship, that that would be a denial of of Caesar's rights. That would have been a serious offense against any Roman official. So the Jews, they use this as an opportunity. They want to suggest 
that Jesus is a threat because he claims to be the Messiah, the anointed one, their king. So Pilate asks him, he asks him plainly in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? It's not, it's not obvious uh, in the English, but most of the commentators point out here that the Greek really emphasizes the word you. Uh, what's going on here is it's not a straightforward uh, yes or no question. Uh, Pilate is not looking for more accurate uh, information here, but it's actually this dismissive and, and almost sarcastic tone. Are you the king of the Jews? You don't look like a king, Jesus. Am I supposed to believe that you pose some kind of threat to me? Uh, you know, even in Jesus' uh, triumphal entry, his, his royal procession into Jerusalem, he comes riding in on a donkey. Uh, now he's imprisoned, and he's anything but royal uh, in his appearance, as far as Pilate can see. So he says, you, this man, is a king? So Jesus, Jesus proceeds to answer Pilate uh, in a way that seems to maybe have unnerved him a little bit. He answers him with a question. He says, well, is this your question or someone else's? Uh, in, in other words, uh, do you really want to know about my kingship? Are you curious? Because I, you know, I could tell you all about it. Or are you... Are you just repeating the accusations of the chief priest? Because, you know, if that's the case, then a few qualifications are in order. But notice here, Jesus has become the interrogator. Uh, Pilate is now uh, the one who's on trial. He's annoyed with Jesus' question. Uh, he says, am I a Jew? This is your deal. Your people are doing this to you, and Jewish concerns mean nothing to me. You see, at this point, it is inconceivable to Pilate that Jesus has any real authority. All he sees uh, is weakness. Sometimes all we see is weakness. Of course, Pilate also knows that the Jews don't have any real interest in Caesar's honor. They, they must be upset about something. So he asked Jesus, what have you done? And then we get this, this famous answer. Well, it certainly could have been the title of the sermon. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is often taken to mean something like, my kingdom is on another plane of existence. Uh, it has no real bearing on this world and only relates uh, to heavenly matters. But that is, that, is not, that is not what Jesus is saying here. We need to, we need to pay close attention uh, to the explanation that he offers. The word world is used uh, in a very particular way in the Gospel of John. You can think of, you can think of John 3.16, that God so loved the world... Uh, the idea here is not the material world. It's not, it's not physical existence. But as D.A. Carson says, it is the sphere of darkness, of rebellion, of blindness, of sin. 
The world here is the fallen world, and it's the principles of the fallen world that Jesus wants to contrast here. You see, he he tells us what his kingdom would be like if it were of this world. He says, well, it would be advancing by force. My servants would take up arms. In fact, earlier in the chapter, uh, we see that Peter tried to do that. When Judas brought a band of soldiers, uh, Peter cut off a man's ear. And Jesus is the one who has to tell him uh, to back off. In fact, in the, in the Matthew account, uh, Jesus says, I could bring down 72,000 angels to my aid if I so pleased, uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, it does not advance with the world's methods. Um, its methods are completely incompatible with the world's methods. And because of that, because those methods, they're not just different, but they actually are incompatible, inevitably, uh, the kingdom ends up being misunderstood, and weakness, weakness is seen as powerlessness. It's not just Pilate. (laughs) It's not just Pilate who thinks that Jesus uh, is powerless here. Uh, You and I, we make this same kind of mistake. A man named R.C. Reed, he was a professor of church history at Columbia Seminary about a century ago. He said, the history of the church is largely a history of expedience devised by those who were impatient of God's slow methods. In other words, the church has often been seduced by a kind of worldly pragmatism. You know, we're, we, we want to have influence. Uh, we want to see the church make a difference in the world, and those are good things, but nobody wants to be weak. We are so afraid of being weak. And I get it. Uh, I, I don't want to go without my preferred coffee cup uh, this morning, so I understand. Um, much less have to experience any of, of the kinds of suffering that we see talked about uh, in the New Testament. But I think, I think if we understood this, I think if we, if we could catch the vision of being united to a Savior who dies for His people, I, I, we might get to see some real kingdom advance here in Athens, Georgia. I want to, so I want to be careful about how I say this. I don't, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Uh, but I think we could be dangerous in the fight between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The people with nothing to lose are always the most dangerous, and nobody had less to lose than Jesus on his way to the cross. And if we, if we could begin to see that we've already died and been raised again with him, then we could actually afford to love people. You wouldn't be hedging all your responsibilities and trying to protect yourself from being overextended, and we could really begin to lean into those difficult situations. 
It might be something as simple as asking, how are you doing? And waiting around for a really hard and difficult answer. You see, because because if you're united to the one who died and rose again, then you can afford to listen to the frenetic and overwhelming response of a broken person. And you can enter into that and become a real threat to darkness. Do you, do you see how weakness is not, is, not really, is not really about retreat here? Christians are not to step back from the world and sort of carve out our own separate lives, but we are to press into it with a self-sacrificial love that is rooted in the knowledge that you are already dead and raised with Jesus. If If you are a believer in Christ, you can be weak because he was weaker. The power that raised him is in you, and this is the way of kingdom advance. There is a powerful kingdom at work here, and it belongs uh, to Jesus. But its operations, uh, they are invisible, and we see that it comes in weakness. And finally, finally what we see is that the kingdom of God is all about the truth. At this, at this point in the conversation, uh, Pilate is essentially oblivious to what Jesus is actually saying to him. So he asks him again, wait, so wait, so, so you are a king? And listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Earlier, uh, Jesus described the kingdom negatively. He said it's not of this world, but now he, he wants to describe it in positive terms. He says he was born and he came into the world for a purpose. This is, this is an obvious reference uh, to his incarnation. Mentioned in John 1 that the eternal word became flesh and his whole purpose for becoming a man was for bearing witness to the truth. Well, well, what truth? <laughs> Which truths? Aren't, aren't, aren't there a lot of truths? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't have uh, in mind here uh, a set of facts or more information, uh, but it is the self-disclosure of God, particularly in the sending of His Son. Jesus Himself is the fullest revelation of God that there is. And as such, He is the revelation of the truth. Truth is act- it's actually a theme uh, that runs throughout the Gospel of John. The Word itself is mentioned uh, 25 times. Uh, it's, in Gos- it's in John's Gospel that we learn that Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's where he tells the woman at the well that those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. We learn there that John the Baptist also bore witness to the truth because he foretold of the coming of God's Son. 
We learn that the truth will set you free, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that the helper, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of truth. And in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father that his people would be sanctified in the truth. And finally, he says that his Father's word is truth. Jesus has a kingdom of truth. All that is to say that Jesus' kingdom is not a set of ideas uh, that can be confined to a particular people, a particular set of observances. It's not a theological concept that we then take and lay over our own experience, but it is the permanent and universal truth because it is reality. The kingdom is the way things really are. And in that sense, it is not really optional uh, at all. There are no uh, neutral parties with regard to the kingdom. His kingdom makes claims not only on its citizens, uh, but the whole world of reality because it's not of the world. It is greater than the world. His kingdom preceded the world, and his kingdom will outlast this world. So when Pilate, you know, when he asks this question, when he says, well, what is truth? Uh, he's not asking an impartial or disinterested question. He's actually revealing himself, according to Jesus' own criteria here, to be an enemy of the truth. Some have sort of taken this as a, as a philosophical question, as though Pilate we're suggesting, well, maybe there's no such thing as truth. But, but I'm not sure that that's really what's happening here. Remember, Pilate is concerned with his own power and his own reputation. And as far as he can tell, Jesus is not a threat to either one. So he scoffs at a kingdom of truth. It's as though he, he looked at Jesus and said, truth, what good is that going to do you? That's not going to get you anywhere in this kingdom. See, he believed that because the truth was irrelevant to his concerns, that he could simply ignore it. And now we say his name every week in the Apostles' Creed. You may have heard of the um, Supreme Court case, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It doesn't matter if you've heard of it or not. It was a Supreme Court case. It happened in 1992. And for the majority opinion, uh, Anthony Kennedy wrote this. He said, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Our own American judicial system has enshrined the idea that freedom is founded upon an individual's ability to make up his own definitions. Uh, That the truth is essentially personal and therefore not real. Now, you may not agree uh, with Justice Kennedy. I I hope that you don't. Um, But the general... 
I think the general tenor of his statement is much more prevalent uh, than we like to admit or realize. And I, I don't just mean sort of out there somewhere, uh, but in here, uh, in the church, it's not, that, it's not that we don't believe the truth exists, but we like it to take a back seat uh, to our preferences and our comfort. This is why Eve uh, believed Satan when he said, did God really say? And it's why you're tempted to believe him too. We all, we all downplay the significance of the truth when it infringes on our deepest desires. But you see, the truth, because it's rooted in the one who is the truth, is like gravity. And in one sense, it doesn't matter if you believe it. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us, for the weapons of our warfare, that that is the warfare of the spiritual kingdom's advance, Uh, they are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive. You see, Christians must be about the truth. Our success, if I, can, if I can put it that way, our success is determined by our fidelity to the truth. God doesn't want you to poke along with a little truth here and a little truth there, just enough to not starve yourself. He would have us to embrace his word, especially the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, the one who is at the bottom and in the back of all truth. He is the king of the truth. And you and I can only know and only participate in this invisible kingdom uh, by the way of the Spirit. We can only embrace a life of weakness for the kingdom's sake uh, in the power of the Spirit. And we can only believe the plain truth about God and salvation in Christ when the Spirit opens our eyes. Uh, The kingdom is a capital S spiritual kingdom. If that's true, then to enter this kingdom or to attempt to advance God's kingdom by any other way than by the Spirit is like fighting against gravity. I know uh, that you know that you need the Spirit. But are you praying uh, for His help? Do you plead for Him to mold you more and more into the image of Christ so that you might offer up obedience that actually comes from the heart? That you might be enabled to gladly lay down your life For others, uh, do you plead with him to help you love the truth uh, just because it's true? In John 17, Jesus tells us that the Spirit guides his people into all truth because he does not speak on his own authority. And then he takes all that he's heard from the Son, which is also from the Father, and he will declare it to his people 
So instead, instead of buying in to the world's methods of progress and power, let us be people of prayer. Men and women who cry out for the aid of the Spirit and who learn to depend not on our own strength, but the power of Christ our King in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us the eyes of faith, that you would enable us to turn away from ourselves and turn toward reality, turn toward life in the Spirit. We ask that you would make us less and less dependent on ourselves, that we would consider ourselves as already dead and raised again with Christ by the Spirit, and that we would live by His power alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.